Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also archived for free anytime you want it, on demand, and other synonyms that mean the same thing at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Although I'm quite sure that iTunes doesn't know it. Uh, anyway, speaking of all about jazz, there's a widget. <laughs> it always sounds slightly dirty. Anyway, there is one, and uh, you can find it at uh, allaboutjazz.com. Just go down to the bottom of the page. Uh, it's it's moved now. It used to be on the side. Now it's on the bottom, so I can look up at all of the wonderful musicians above me. And uh, if you see down at the bottom there, there's a little box for the jazz session, and you just click on that, and there's some instructions on how to put a box just like that on your homepage or webpage or blog or whatever. And if you do that, then let me know, okay, because then I will talk about your blog or website or homepage or cookbook or whatever it might be uh, in my weekly newsletter. Speaking of which, you may get that newsletter by joining the mailing list or the Facebook group. It's the same thing for each, so do one or the other, but don't do both unless you enjoy getting extra email. But uh, you can join those, uh, the mailing list at thejazzsession.com and the Facebook group by typing the Jazz Session into the Facebook search box. Can I tell you a little bit of behind the curtain, a little peek behind the scenes? I used to do the introduction to this show. Well, I think in the very beginning I did the introduction to this show by winging it and getting it wrong and re-recording it 400 times until I had said something that sounded good enough to keep. And then for most of the past almost three years, I read it off a piece of paper so that it was exactly the same every time. And then uh, several weeks ago, uh, something happened. Barbarians swept through the room where I do the recording or something. There was a, some sort of uh, meteorological event, and the room was in what we can politely call disarray. And anyway, I couldn't find the piece of paper that had the introduction on it. Of course, I could have printed a new one out, but... That's the lazy man's way. So instead, I just uh, I remember what to say at the very beginning, and I just improvise the rest. And uh, why I'm telling you that is because I, I think that more and more these days I'm sounding like an idiot <laughs> at the beginning and end of the show. And it's not because – well, it may be because, but it's not because of uh, anything I'm aware of that's happening to me mentally uh, more than you might expect. But it is literally just because I'm no longer reading what I used to read at the beginning, and now I'm just saying whatever comes into my mind, much like what I'm saying right now. So with an introduction that good, how could the rest of the show not be fantastic? Luckily for you, it is. Uh, I am very, very pleased to have finally met in person Amy Servini. She is uh, obviously a very talented singer, which you're going to hear in just a moment, but she's also a, a tireless promoter of the music, uh, working with other artists to help uh, get them exposure, and uh, which she just kind of got into organically, as you'll hear. Her most recent album is called Love Fool, and I hate to do this to you because if if you are like me, you will be able to think of nothing else but this song now for however long it is until you hear the next incredibly catchy tune. But anyway, the Cardigans recorded that tune, Love Fool, and uh, I think they were kind of kidding. And Amy Servini does a great job at it uh, with all of the right, uh, I think all of the right things in the right places. And this is a lot of what it sounds like.
is Amy Servini. Her new album, Love Fool, is out now, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. I want to start right off with what seems to be kind of at the center of, of your music, which is repertoire, and you seem to have both a great ear and a somewhat surprising ear for what you're uh, willing to include and what you can make work. Can you talk about what what does a song have to have to, to speak to you or to, to make it into a set or a, a record? Well, um, for me, the challenge as a singer has been constantly to find things that excite me and that are new and I feel like there are so many people out there who have done the standards so much better than I will ever be able to do them um, that I thought I would find something else that speaks to me and that I can make my own and sort of create my own voice with so in terms of the repertoire I go for I, I start with just a feeling do I love the song does it make me happy do I dance when I hear the song? Does it, you know, and then can we turn that into something that works? We can't always. We are trying really hard to get Dave Matthews in the book. It's not working. <laughs> if we're really trying. I mean, it's just not, it's not translating somehow. Um, but with all the songs that are on this record particularly, they were all songs that I loved growing up and that I, you know, had a connection with and they ended up somehow working. Some of them, you know, the, the, the title track was sort of, um, the ending anyway was a joke, but I'm sort of so open to so many different things that when my brother went for that doo-wop feel at the end, I was like, oh, well, yes, that might work. And everyone was like, oh, no, Aim, really? Is that good? Really? I was like, let's, let's just go with it. Let's see if it worked. And, you know, it made it. So I think... Um, I think the cardigans were also joking, which I think helps. I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> right. I think you are telling a joke about a joke they told, right? right. So right, right, it's all right. good in the end. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, you know, that I was a huge Depeche Mode fan on my, you know, had a pink ghetto blaster and I used to put the cassettes in and play myself to sleep with Depeche yeah. Mode and 
So I mean, it just came from things that had good memories for me and that mm. made me feel something. And then we're going to see if we can bring these great, because some of them are really great tunes that maybe can be, you know, revived or brought back again or experimented with and played with to become something different. And, you know, why not? It's something that, uh, it's a different kind of challenge than singing a standard for sure. Mm. Anything but Some people that I've talked to who are also trying to bring in repertoire from outside the standard Great American Songbook have said that one of the difficulties is that when you – it's cool during the bit where you're singing, but when you get to the part where you have to improvise, that sometimes that's a challenge. I have to say – I'll insert my own opinion here – that sometimes that confuses me because, I mean, there are entire records like Kind of Blue, for example, that are based on remarkably simple chord structures. So the idea that it doesn't go through five chords a bar doesn't seem to me to be – a justification for why it might be hard to improvise over. But I get that maybe there's some difference between those tunes and what we're used to. Can you talk about your experience with bringing that kind of music in? Sure. From an improvisatory standpoint? I think that, I think that it's different for each musician. Um, I think you're absolutely right. That stuff, the really simple stuff can actually be, re- for me anyway, can be really fun to improvise over and to, to play with and try and, I mean, say something in two chords, go for it. And you have, you know, an open amount of time to do that. That's pretty... To me, that's a great challenge, and it's really fun, and it doesn't always work, but it's something to, you know, strive for. And then there are musicians that aren't interested in that. They want structure. They want the changes to go where they think they're supposed to go. Mm. It's funny. In our band, we're, I'm surprised we work as a band because we're all just so tremendously different musicians, humans. I mean, in all ways, we're so different. And our piano player, Michael, is really sort of a straight-ahead piano player. And we take him places that he is squirmy and not comfortable with sometimes. And he is one of those guys. He would rather have changes that go where he wants them to go and are exactly what he thinks they're supposed to be. Then, you know, we tried to do a Bjork tune in the band, and it didn't work because he was just like, I can't. It was like Unravel, I think, and it was, you know, four chords maybe. And he just, he was like, you know, I don't think this is working. I just can't. He was, it was too far out of his comfort zone. So that's, you know, I respect that. That's cool. But I really think that it works if you want to make it work, mm. you know? Um, and sometimes I think part of the problem with the, with getting Dave Matthews in, it's, it's that they work so well already the way that they exist. Mm. And it's hard to try and reinvent that because it's so current. And he does have so much, I mean, he's a, the band you hear music inside what he does totally and you hear you know the solos are pretty killing i mean they only get 16 bars but but they kill that 16 bars you know um so i think that's the problem with that kind of thing the translation there but i feel like you know even you're right with the simple stuff i mean that just that's just a different kind of challenge you know it's one thing to be able to improvise over lots of chords and play lots of notes and make your lines so that everything connects well but it's another thing to take you know an open vamp go for it well that's something completely different i i think that's kind of fun i remember the first time on the dave matthews thing that i ever heard dave matthews 
I think I said to my wife, you know, this is like, it's like big band pop music. <laughs> because he's really, they're actually playing, I mean, arrangements. I mean, it's not just like tunes and it might not happen this way next time. I mean, those are really tight, very smart arrangements, right. out of which any part can be removed and the whole thing collapses, it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. I've never heard any part removed, but I would guess that that's what would happen. Right. So I can understand why that might be difficult to translate. There's a lot less freedom for you as an arranger to try and take that exactly. because it's so cemented in many ways. Right, right. And the, and the, line, the horn lines make it what it is. You take out those horn lines and you're like, oh, all of a sudden it's not, you know, it's not that tune anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly it. You've mentioned by first name now two of the members of your band, but will you tell folks uh, who they all are? Yes. Um, so the aforementioned Michael Cabe on the piano, uh, Mark Lau on the bass, and my brother Ernesto Cervini on drums. And so how did this band get together? You mentioned how different you all are. <laughs> well, those guys all were at the Manhattan School of Music together, mm. the three of them, and they were friends, and I was looking for... Um, a band to play with that wanted to rehearse. That's not always easy Um, because guys just want to play. And I mean guys in the very gender, not specific sense. Um, They just, everyone just wants to play and, you know, maybe have a session or two. I wanted to rehearse. I wanted there to be some sense of purpose. You know, we are going to go and we're going to create arrangements that have space inside them for all sorts of great openness, but we're going to, you know, be a band mm-hmm. and have rehearsals. Like we were, So we were rehearsing twice a week, and these were just guys that I asked my brother, and he said, you know, I think these guys will do it, and I think they'll be into it, and they won't require a paycheck for a rehearsal, and they won't, you know, they won't be annoying about rehearsing. And, you know, I tried to make it worth something. I, you know, I bought the beer, and... So that was we thank we thank Blue Moon in our record because it fueled many a rehearsal. Um, <laughs> but it was basically they were all the three of them were friends, and then they let me sort of come in, and they were into it, and they wanted just as much as I did to be part of something different and not just go out and play, you know, haphazard kind of gigs. And um, part of that, my brother and I are super disciplined musicians. Um, we grew up with like really strict sort of boundaries in terms of music and you rehearse that's what you do and so we've grown up wanting sort of needing that you know that rehearsal and that working everything out and not I mean we're perfectly comfortable going in and just you know doing something but why when you can rehearse you know (laughs) why why do you have to talk on the bandstand when you could talk the day before or three days before and then you know it's a it's a it's a level of professionalism too that we've sort of become accustomed to and and sort of require of ourselves. Mm. Um, and those guys were willing to come along for the ride, um, and they've been great about going on all sorts of crazy rides with me ever since. So. Silence, break the silence 
come crashing in into my little world. Painful to me, pierce right through me. Can't you understand, oh my little girl? All I wanted, all I needed, is here in my arms. Words are very unnecessary; they can only do harm. What did you mean when you say you grew up with strict boundaries? Who imposed them, and what 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 were the boundaries surrounding? What was we were? Um, I was a classical piano player up until I was 18 and also a saxophone player I actually went to school for saxophone not for voice um, at New England Conservatory I started as a saxophone major um, and growing up the two of us were both my mother worked in a music school and we the three of us I have a, we have a sister as well the three of us were all playing classical piano and practiced two three hours a day I mean we would wake up in the morning before school and practice and then practice after, and then we all played our secondary instruments as well. I played saxophone, my sister played flute, and my brother played clarinet and drums. And so we would have these, you know, practice blocks. And then we were also in a big band, all three of us actually, where the stress of, at that time of the big band was not on improvisation. You would lift solos and play like the old school solos, the way that they had been played, you know, in Benny Goodman's band. And you would, that's what you would do. And there was also this sense of we were the sort of, you know, the big kids in the band. We were, you know, always sent out to do the small combo gigs. and the So we had a lot of experience with, you know, just we knew not to, you know, put our hand over the microphone at a young age and how to sort of present ourselves professionally. And, you know, there was a time where we, I think all of us at one time or other, really rebelled against all of that, you know, and wanted nothing to do with that and wanted to be free and wanted to just do whatever we wanted. And there was, of course, you know, level of resentment towards that sort of strict, because um, it was a lot of practice and it was practice in a way that wasn't always, you know, useful. Mm. Because when you're 14 and someone says, well, you have 10 minutes left, you got to go back. Really? That's the last thing you're going to do. I mean, you're just going to play whatever it is that gets you through those 10 minutes so you're not actually practicing in order to get better we have this sort of both of us have this strict background that we've rebelled against and then sort of come back to in a way because we appreciate sort of the values that were behind all that even if we didn't like it at the time and still think that maybe things could have been done differently there's a certain value and expectation level that I think is you know cool makes a lot of sense going back to the to the members of your band is it does it make it easier to uh, kind of present non-traditional music to audiences when the players in your band are so adept at traditional song forms does that make kind of it, bringing it, that into that into jazz easier i think so um especially with michael um he has a way um we start off some tunes with you know, he'll start off something really like stride pretty. Well, I mean, this 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 tune that I'm thinking of is "The More I Go Out" from the record, and mm -hmm. but that's a pretty traditional song, except that I have the guy singing, you know, three part harmony behind me, which is not. It's I guess it's really traditional. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back further than yes. than anything in the last thirty years, I guess.
It depends on the audience. I really have to say that we went to, we played recently at Firehouse 12 in New Haven, and their concert series is fairly experimental. And they saw, and we actually heard murmurings in the lobby beforehand, like, oh, singer, oh, I heard some of the stuff online. It's, you know, it was pretty straight ahead. You know, all these. And we watched the audience turn, and we watched them, you know, arms crossed at the beginning, to, like, grooving just a little like three tunes in and to be able to turn an audience like that is it's pretty powerful and I think part of it more than actually um, the traditionalism in Mike, Michael's playing it's that we all are coming at this from our, with our own individual very individual voices and we're all having fun doing it and I think that translates I think that no matter what kind of music you're playing if you are enjoying yourself, that is going to translate to an audience, and you will you will get them, no matter what. It does occasionally having having that the fact that we can go back and forth and do and play a standard pretty straight down the middle, and convince convincingly, I think helps us because if we were going all out with you know crazy rearrangements, perhaps we would lose some people. Who knows? I mean. It's such a bizarre, and every person and every audience and every room is so different that it's really been hard for me to tell how we're doing, sure. you know? Are there some tunes on the record that surprised you that you thought, oh, I'll bring this in, but I, I don't think it's going to work, and then it worked? Or, You know, we this is the second time we recorded the Green Day tune. Mm-hmm. Um, we recorded it for our first record, and it didn't make it. And then we recorded it again, and this time it made it. I think I changed the key a little bit so that I was a little bit more convincing, and we, after playing it for you know four years, everyone became a little bit more comfortable with sure. the whole thing. Um let me see. Other tune. I, of course, can't think of any tunes on the record now. You know, Love Fool. Well, the first time we played Love Fool, I don't think that we thought it was going to last. <laughs> um, it was just so silly. I mean, you know, it was really fun, and we had a great time doing it. And nothing makes me happier than when Mark takes out the bow and does a bowed bass. Well, he doesn't always do it because sometimes he doesn't feel like it, but... Nothing could make me happier than that bowed bass solo, and um, and the addition of the strings. My husband did the string arrangement on it, and Marty Ehrlich plays bass clarinet, and it just becomes even more of a circus show. And that, I mean, it just—it's joy. It just—you know—I'm not trying to say anything profound or change the face of jet. I'm having fun, mm. and at the end, I think that's why all these tunes ended up making it on because I was like, okay, did these end up saying something fun? They did. Well, there you go. So. <laughs> I have fun, so we're going to just keep it in there. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> you, uh, you're involved in, in many other things besides this quartet. Will you talk about the Jazz Country uh, Project? Yeah, sure. That one's, you know, it sort of came out of this project, and it also came out of one of my students who 
every time she sings a song, it somehow turns into a country tune. And she's, you know, she's a New Yorker. There's no reason for her to have this in her. But it, it kind of came out that way. She sang Billy Joel, and it sounded country to me. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's kind of a cool concept. That's something I can get behind. So I, and I had been wanting to play with Matt Aronoff and Jesse Lewis for a while. And again, for me, project-based things end up being more successful because there's a focus and it's not just let's go play. I can, you know, I have a different mindset and I know different rooms are going to work better for different bands. Um, and it started off just the three of us as a trio, which is super fun. We're actually going to do one um, coming up soon. And we just have, you know, we have a great time, just the three of us, such an open vibe. And we basically take, and it's not all country songs, it's a little bit misleading, but this is, again, just furthering my sort of thing, I guess, in quotes, about <laughs> music is music, and good music is good music, so it shouldn't matter what it is. And you say jazz country to people, and a lot of people hate jazz, and a lot of people hate country, and I'm putting them both in a title, so I'm you know, sort of challenging people's expectations a little bit. Um, and we do, I, I bring over the, uh, the Cole Porter Don't Fence Me In, which is from my first record. We do that in the other band because I think that's a great example of something that we do in a, like with a little, you know, country vibe, but it's a, it's a Cole Porter tune, you know, it's both things combined. And, um, the addition of, I, I really want cello. We're still sort of working on who's going to be right for it but um we've been working with this uh guy named Diaer Evnin he plays guitar and cello which is an interesting and both of them very well and actually sings which a guy who sings I mean <laughs> he belongs in my band um <laughs> uh, we do an Alison Krauss tune where actually all the, the everyone sings I have every it's just I guess it's a recurring theme for me which tune which uh maybe oh, nice. mm, it's beautiful so and then we added um Anat Cohen who is an amazing clarinetist, and that sort of takes the, certainly the standards and brings them to a new level. I mean, when you have a soloist like Anat, and she just does that stuff so well, you know, we play something like Frim Fram Sauce and it becomes just elevated and she takes it somewhere else on the clarinet. She's just sort of brilliant at that. So that one's one that I'm working on sort of slowly but surely trying to you know, with this record, everything else had to sort of take a back seat for a minute. And then now that it's out there, I can try and at least bring up some other things. Um, I'm also in a vocal group called Monday Off. It's four-part harmony, Broadway jazz. They're all Broadway singers except for me. So that's interesting. We get to do pops shows. We play with, you know, New York pops. and cool. It's a totally different... To it's a stage show. I mean, really. I mean, we, you know, are up there in gowns and tuxedos and... It's a, it's a totally different world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one I wanted to ask you about was the couples therapy mm. project we talked about. Yeah. So couples therapy started um, as my friend Michal Cohen, who's a wonderful Israeli singer. She now moved back to Israel. But we used to just get together and sing at each other, basically. We would just free improvise, close our eyes and just go. And sometimes it was, you know, five minutes and sometimes it was 15 minutes. And then we decided that there was something about it that we wanted to share at first, we just did it as an exercise, sort of, you know, for just for our own ears and our own voices. And then we decided there was enough there that we wanted to share it. So we did one show a couple years ago, or two shows, actually, um, really fun with just uh, bass and keyboards. 
And when we called it couples therapy, because it really was, there were times when we would sing together and we would be in tears by the end. I mean, it was just so sort of emotional and therapeutic, really. I mean, that's what it ended up being. Um, and she moved back to Israel, which was such a shame because I was really looking forward to, you know, moving this forward. And it's too hard. I mean, she hasn't, she actually hasn't been back since she moved. She's so happy being home. I've become great friends with Joe Laurie, who's an extraordinary singer. And I was approached by Matana Roberts to do a show at The Stone. And I thought that it would be a great, I know that it's a great room for this show because I did it once there with Michal. So I thought about bringing actually Joe and James Ship, who are a couple, and my husband plays keyboards in the band, so it's the four of us, as well as Matt Aronoff, who is a good friend of all of us, and he is often our fifth wheel. He'll hate that I said that, but <laughs> but he's a great fifth wheel. We love him. And so it's the five of us, and you know, repertoire-wise, we're still sort of working it out, but it's, it's basically about the two voices um, and how two voices can work together in non-traditional ways and traditional ways to sort of make music for voice. Um, and so I think it's, that's another one that's going to be genre-less. I mean, it'll have, I think right now we have some traditional music and we want to do a Matt Wilson tune. And, you know, we have all sorts of different things sort of in the air about this. What is it about those performances that was able to, for example, reduce you to tears? What makes that... What made that combination so powerful? I think that the, anytime you have more than one voice together, it just has this special sort of quality. It's so human. It's so, and you can get this in instrumental music too, I think. I've heard it before, where you have two people communicating through music without words. Because we were actually, a lot of stuff that we were doing together was wordless. The stuff that really got me was wordless. And I think it's just the combination of these musical ideas it's so sort of on another plane, you know, that kind of experience where you are just feeling each other without saying anything. And that's sort of special. That's something that you can't, words sometimes get in the way of that sort of relationship. Um, and with the way it affected audience was sort of amazing. I didn't think, I didn't necessarily think that it would translate because it's such a self-indulgent it can be such a self-indulgent moment and we did a few free improvisations on the gigs which actually worked you know i think that had we done a whole night like that maybe it would have been too much for people but people responded really well to this sort of conversation without words and this the power of two voices two and two often very different voices makes it even more you know interesting Been a joy, a shiny toy. Glad we played your county fair. I'm glad you came to see me there. I sang that song, looked right at you. You came backstage like I knew you'd do. It's a doggone shame our week is through. Bye bye, country boy. Sweet and shy. Sunday clothes 
Cause you brought a rose I love the hot rod moonlight spins Those sleepy roomy country inns Your voice sends my world away Those sunny laughing picnic days You've been a joy, a shiny toy Bye bye, country boy How do younger people who are not necessarily jazz fans, but who are fans of the music that you interpret in your various bands, how how has that reaction been to to what you've been doing? Um, it's it's sort of interesting. I think people, we have some fans. Basically, it's such a weird thing to say that I have fans, but it's sort of true. I mean, there are people who come out repeatedly through either they hear about us from a friend, and you know, friends friends of mine know that they can bring non music people to my gigs and have them enjoy it. Mm which is sort of a great thing for me. Um, and those are the people who buy CDs, frankly. I mean, those your non-musician friends are the ones who are going right. <laughs> to buy the CD and who are going to come out to gigs because um, they're lawyers and they have money to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I think part of it is no matter – they understand the song. They have a, There's this recognition factor that I think people really um, – respond to so they go oh i remember that song and no matter if we're doing loveful as a tango mm -hmm. they still remember that song and they go i love that song and so it doesn't matter what we've been doing to it or that we've changed some chord changes or that maybe there's a bowed bass solo which you know i don't nine times out of ten people have never heard that before live you know um i know that it, it's sort of it's hard for me because a lot of the people who who are in that age group are friends of mine. So I know that they love me. So to separate them just loving me and so they love the stuff that we do and them actually loving the stuff that we do is sort of hard. But I know that, you know, I have a friend who really likes Weezer and because we did a Weezer song, he will forever come out to our gigs mm. and will always, you know, be super supportive of what we do. And they say, they say that they listen to the CD too a lot, which, you know, I don't know why they would lie to me, but um, <laughs> but if it's something that people who wouldn't normally buy a jazz CD can listen to, I think that's a great thing. I mean, why not? Maybe it'll lead them to something a little bit more left of center or even just something, you know, another jazz singer. If you look under the list of, you know, people also bought this. Well, maybe they'll go check that out and notice that it, you know, can be fun to listen to. And it sounds like conversely from the Firehouse 12 experience, for example, that people who are there to hear jazz, whatever that word even means, <laughs> uh, also can get behind repertoire they're not familiar with, the places that you're drawing it from. Yeah, I, and so far so good. I think I think part of it is that we manage somehow, and I mean, I'm going to rip off some reviews, but, I, but I'm, I'm glad that people are saying this because I feel like it's, it's what I'm going for. There's an honesty behind what we're doing. We're not mm -hmm. trying to, you know, I'm just trying to sing a song and have fun. And there's a sincerity that comes through, and I think people connect with that so that for either side, it doesn't matter what the, what the genre is or what the tunes are, they're connecting with something else, something else that they're able to, you know, hang on to and, you know, believe in. Mm. Can you talk about uh, where you grew up and how you ended up here in New York? Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I, as I was saying, you know, was a musician from very early age, uh, was a very serious classical pianist and 
saxophone player and um, I sang because I was the only girl in the band in the big band that's sort of how it ended kind up. Kind of know your gender role. That's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, 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 it was good. It actually worked out beautifully for me. Um, I went to an art school uh, for a couple years in for high school, and I had to actually be in the music theater program because the music program was a little bit actually too easy. I would have been fairly bored or in a practice room all day, which, why bother? I mean, at that point, I might as well be homeschooled. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so I did something that I perhaps wasn't as comfortable with, and I, it was totally out of my comfort zone, especially the whole dance thing. I mean, that was not any of my – I'd never taken a dance class in my life before I did that. So that was a great experience, and then I decided I wanted to be a doctor, so I changed schools and ended up in the music room and started a jazz vocal group. And when it came time for university, I, I tried for – I was trying basically – I was auditioning for everything on saxophone. I didn't bother singing. But in my audition for the New England Conservatory of Music, Hank Snetsky said to me, it says here that you sing. And he's got this great energy, and he's frenetic, and he's really sort of wacky. And I had just driven for however many hours, eight hours, to get to Boston and was sick. And I said, yeah, I can sing. He said, well, could you sing something? I was like, okay, anything? Do you want me to take a solo? He said, oh, you do that? I said, yeah, I could do that. I was like, okay, yeah, 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 do that. And, you know, long story short, I went to the Newton Conservatory the next year. <laughs> um, I'm fairly certain it's because of the singing part of it. Um, so I ended up uh, at the Newton Conservatory and as a saxophone major, but they um, strongly encouraged me to basically split my studio mm-hmm. between voice and saxophone, which I was more than happy to do. Uh, and I studied with Dominique Ede at uh, NEC as well as Alan Chase. It was a, they were my surrogate family out there in Boston. And by my last year, I just decided I needed to focus on one. It wasn't working, splitting my brain. And ultimately, I wasn't ever happy improvising on the saxophone. It's just, there was something missing. There was a connection missing. I would all, my friends would ask, are you okay? After every concert, because I just looked so miserable in a big band concert, I mean, you couldn't stop me from having fun because that, to me, is, you know, reading on saxophone is so much fun and being part of that. I got to play with George Russell and George Lewis and mm. do all sorts of, you know, Gunther Schuller and do all sorts of really great big band stuff, which that I could do all day. But as soon as you make me stand up and take a solo, I just turn into this little tiny girl who is miserable where she is. So I switched over to voice. I was fully planning to go back home to Canada. But you get this year of practical training, it's called, after you graduate, where you can stay here and try working for a year. And I had met my husband in my last year of school, and it was his, he's from Israel, and it was his dream to go to New York. And I thought, well, you know, I was just going to go home. New York sounds fun. Sure, let's do that. So we moved to New York, and we have been here ever since, um, sort of slowly making our way. We both have done a million other things. We continue, frankly, to do a million other things. Um, and we had day gigs at, you know, a classical music web company. We launched this huge website for these people, and we've done, I mean, just about everything. And only in the last, I would say, five years have we both sort of musically really, really begun to, you know, say something. We were busy trying to survive for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's not surprising. You, um, you're involved in the, the kind of promotion and marketing side of jazz, too. And I wonder if, 
if being involved in that side of music, has it changed the way you approach either maybe constructing sets or the tunes, some of the tunes you pick to sing, or where you, how you approach just being a musician in general, since you have to do that for other people besides just yourself? I think, I think how that whole thing came about is that I have that inside of me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I started Orange Grove Artists, which is my sort of, it's, it's kind of a management company, but we sort of, we, by we, I mean me. I sort it's of, the royal <laughs> we, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I keep it purposefully open because I'm not sure what I want it to be um, yet still after, you know, five years. But it started just basically because I, beginning my career, was getting listings in New York. And some of my friends who, had, who were, you know, four years ahead of me weren't getting their gigs listed. And they were like, Amy, how did you get that? I said, guys, it's really easy. You just really you send an email to these people and you write a press release. Oh, I don't know how to do that. It started like that, and I would say, please, let me, let me help you because it drives me crazy that you guys are not getting the play that you deserve just because you're either too lazy or you have no idea how to do this stuff. It's really easy. That's how it started. Word got around. It just spread. And then I started you know, helping, helping all sorts of people. I was Fred Hirsch's assistant. I still do some stuff for Fred. And then... Um, Marty Ehrlich, and now my roster is sort of, it's a nice size, all really great people, which is a lovely thing. We've sort of come to a place where I'm really happy working with everyone that I'm working with. And I think that that was always in me, this like somehow, this ability to organize and to have things sort of set up properly and makes sense. I mean, that's all what that's all marketing and promotion and all that stuff is. I mean, you look at everything, you look at the pieces and you decide what's most important and you, you know, highlight that. And to me, it's not brain surgery. And I know it is for a lot of people, which is, you know, totally cool. They can do things artistically that I can't do, but I have this mind that works in this way that allows me to do both. And I think that, I think that that was there actually before I even started the business. That's just something that I was, you know, good at. And, and at least in my experience, is so tied in to to emotion and being 
does I don't know maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be being centered in an emotional place but at least being aware kind of where you are emotionally and you I've discovered today are pregnant yes. and I'm wondering if that's had an impact on your performing or um, just kind of where you are in the music yeah so far you know so far it's had a mostly physical impact mm. on my singing um, I I'm about five and a half months along right now and there are days, frankly, lately that I sort of forget that I'm pregnant because I've just been so busy with everything that until I try and do something physically <laughs> that perhaps is not on my list of things I should be doing, I sort of forget that or until I realize that my blood sugar is really low and I'm shaking and I need to eat something. Um, emotionally, it's been sort of an okay ride for me. I think that, you know, I've been working on all sorts of things in terms of music and emotion over the last four or five years. And all of that work has sort of helped stabilize this period. Mm. Um, and so mostly it's just been the physical aspect of breath. I mean, and my vocal cords are different. It feels like I have to warm up twice as long as I did before just to make it through the night um, and to make the sounds that I want to make. I actually was doing... Um, part of this uh, Joe Phillips has this Vipassana project that he does and I'm one of the singers in that and we did a show and it was just as I was telling people that I was like really at the three month mark and at one point I hadn't told Joe yet and at one point there I have to sing these really long lines and I just ran out of breath every bar I was running out of and it's really slow and I was just running and he was like come on Amy don't be shy and I I went to him afterwards and I was like Joe I'm sorry I just I I haven't had a chance to tell you, but I'm pregnant and I have no breath control right now. <laughs> I haven't figured out quite how this is working yet and how to, you know, help my lungs work through this. I get winded going up the stairs, two flights of stairs, and I feel like I could fall asleep. And I, you know, I'm in fairly okay shape these days, so it's not, it's not about that. I know it's not. It's about this something physical something physical obviously i'm growing a baby it's not just something <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think we can fairly carefully pinpoint the actual source of the physical changes but yeah so far it's been mostly physical um it it is a little bit strange to sing songs like i want to get married now it's a whole new twist <laughs> on that i mentioned it in most of my shows just that it's it brings a whole new it's a different trash version of i want to get married <laughs> I feel like I should take off my shoes and be barefoot. <laughs> the shotgun and, wedding version and, now. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, rubbing my tummy or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be interested, you know, the next time we talk, um, you know, for the next record, to, to hear about the changes. Because I've obviously never been pregnant, but I'm a father. And, and ever since my first son was born, I noticed almost immediately that there were things, even just things in pop culture that affected me much differently than before I had kids. And so, uh, and I've never... Most of the time, I actually don't know unless I just happen to find out whether the musicians that I talk to have children or not. It's just mm. not the kind of thing that tends to appear in their bios or anything. Right. So I don't ever get a chance to ask anybody about how family life affects their music or anything. But so we'll part two. We'll come back. Yes, we'll I'm sure that. there will be many things to talk about. <laughs> so uh, what's coming up for you? What uh, what kind of and by which I don't mean like what's coming up in the next week, but what's other than having a baby? What are you What are you looking to do and other than plans. that, I really I would love to record the Jazz Country Project mm. um, coming up. It's it's a hard, it is, I mean, it's a serious planning, scheduling challenge at this point. 
to decide if I can, and financial, to combine those two things and decide when I can do the next record is, is, is going to be interesting. Um, I also have a Blossom Deary tribute um, that I, I really, I mean, I loved. I still love Blossom. Blossom passed away earlier this year, and I did a tribute to her before she passed away. And um, it was really some of the most fun I've had singing standards. And I don't generally. But she just picked such great tunes. They were so um, interesting, and not everyone does them. And it's, you know, it's sort of... I found a different part of me, in a way. I had been so against standards for so long, and then I opened my eyes to this, to Blossom stuff, and picked some repertoire and thought, oh, you know, she does some Frischberg, and she does some interesting things, and it's not all all of me or something, you know? Um, so I'd love to record that as well in the next, I mean, what, two years, three years or something? And you just had a successful run doing that here in the city, right? I just did one show. Yeah. I just did one, uh, one show at, uh, the 55 bar last week, actually with a whole new band. I mean, when I did it at the, at the blue note a while ago, it was with Matt Wilson and Frank Kimbrough. I guess that was the one I was thinking. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was last, that was about a year ago now. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Time. Uh, It was uh, Matt Wilson, Frank Kimbrough, Abishai Cohen on trumpet, and Dan Loomis on bass. And that was, I mean, that was such great fun. We had such a, such a good time. I did it last week with some new guys that I had never, Jared Schoenig and John Chin and Dan Loomis again, because um, Dan will sing like a choir boy, and this again requires some singing. Um, <laughs> so I really hope to record that one. I'm going to break in for one second here yes. to say, if the jazz world gets any smaller, uh-huh. we can interview everyone at once. I mean, it's ridiculous that it's. I don't normally in shows and people just, you know, you end up mentioning musicians because that's the way it is, and normally because I ask, right? And everybody knows everybody. It's uh-huh. getting ridiculous. Now. It is. It's getting insane. I mean, literally, we could just all get together at a restaurant sometime and we oh, could yeah. just interview the entire jazz community. Mm-hmm. We'll just have the largest, this one large group interview, and that'll be my final show. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good idea. A, I'll just drop the mic at the end, like Chris Rock <laughs> at the end of a set, walk off stage, say, We got them all? That's a great idea. I think people will be into it. I don't know. I mean, we might be there for a really long time, yeah, especially, right. exactly. especially with the different generations you get. I could sit and listen to, you know, Marty and Matt Wilson tell stories and Frank Kimbrough. I mean, these guys have stories, it's really amazing yeah. stories. And, you know, I'll have different stories, but they're not quite the same kinds of stories. I have yeah. like war stories and they have really fun, like inspirational <laughs> or crazy musician stories. Or they you have know? turned their war stories into those yes, stories. Yes, which yeah, is nice. passage of time. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, my guest is Amy Cervini. The new record is called Love Fool. Uh, it's a great record, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and I hope you'll come back again. Thank you, definitely. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks a lot. Je n'aime que toi 
Amy Servini from her new album, Love Fool. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, and this program is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free, on demand, anytime you want it, archived, <laughs> etc., at thejazzsession.com, and also in iTunes. You know, for some time. So anyway, uh, thanks so much to the Respect Sextet. They provided the opening and closing music for the show. You should check them out. That's all I'm saying. You should find out more about them, go see them live, buy their albums. You can do all those things at uh, respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel. He designed the Jazz Sessions logo and made it look pretty. Thank you to you for listening. And now I encourage you to go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then please come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>